I just got back from Fall Retreat about two hours ago. <laughs> Good way to start. Matthew chapter 13 is where we're going to be at this evening. We're returning to a great chapter with, uh, with a lot of great teachings of Christ back to back. This is one of the times where he really gets on a roll and is able to, to express a lot of information to crowds. And then we're going to see as he gets a little bit more intimate setting here in really verses 37 on to the end of the chapter, through verse 52, almost to the end of the chapter, where he gets, he gets a little time with just his disciples. He's been teaching to the crowds leading up to this, and now he's getting to his, to his disciples. And he's able to start talking about a different topic and dig just a little bit deeper with them as he explains some previous parables, but then within that explanation starts to dig into some new ones. We're going to look at three. We're going to do something a little different tonight. Instead of just sitting in one, we're going to look at three that are inter interconnected that talk about the same thing and are kind of woven to, to show a few different aspects of the same thing. So Matthew chapter 13, let's read together, verse 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew, up, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we've done, as we started every one of our ministers of the roundtable discussions on the parables, the first thing we really got like to look at is the context to this. You know, one thing I always mention when I talk about the context, when I'm talking to our, to our students here about the, the importance of context in the discussion, it's just like the same principle when you're buying a new, a new house. One of the first things that they always, you always have to look for, what's one of the, first, the biggest aspects of locating your house that you want to live in? Location, location, location. It's what's around it. It's what's surrounding it that really puts that value into it at times. And so as we turn our attention to verses 40 through, 44 through 50 tonight, the first thing we've got to look at is context, context, context. And we've already looked at, a little, at this a little bit a few weeks ago when we looked at the, uh, the parable found early in this chapter of the sower. But let me open it up again to see maybe how, the, how uh, this context speaks more directly to this passage. So, gentlemen, how do these parables fit into the context of Jesus' ministry at this moment? As I was studying the, for the context of this particular parable, obviously I was reminded of what we had to say about the parable of the sower uh, being in the same chapter. But I found it interesting looking at it again, um, looking at how Jesus explains his use of parables in chapter 13, uh, verses 10 and following talking about why he chose to teach in parables, but yet again in chapter 13, a little bit later on, we see in verse 34, if you'll read with me, uh, a, a, another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. He says, all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And so here in this chapter, we see time and time again, not only Jesus using parables, but time and time again, Jesus explaining why he was using the parables. I find that very interesting as we look at the text, especially 
uh, the explanation he gives here in what we just read, I've never really thought about Jesus using and, and employing uh, parables for the sake of fulfilling prophecy. I've never really uh, thought deeply about verse 35 there as uh, it is fulfilling what is found in Psalm chapter 78 and verse 2. If you want to look at that cross-reference, Psalm 78 and verse 2, you can see uh, that the, the Christ was to open his mouth in parables and to reveal things that had been formerly kept secret. And so I find that very important for us as we kind of get close to the end of our study to also be reminded of the fact that whenever we look at the context of these parables, we have to understand this is Jesus actively fulfilling prophecy. Uh, yet again, another one of those instances where the people listening should have said, huh, <laughs> old Psalm 78 said that the Christ would be speaking in parables, but yet again, as we find throughout the rest of the Gospels and time and time again, they just can't see it, right? They just can't understand that the Christ is before them. They don't want to believe it, at least. And so, because he's trying to fulfill prophecy by speaking by parables, you see in chapter 13, I believe, seven or eight parables in one chapter. I mean, how amazing is that, that Jesus could tell so many different stories that all had this connection in a certain way, uh, that all connected to the kingdom of, of God, the church. It's just amazing that not only Jesus is, is laying down this form of teaching, this foundational form of teaching and communicating that he had, but also in the process is fulfilling scripture, is fulfilling prophecy. There's this amazing uh, thing when you think about it. Because uh, usually when you think about the parables, you think Jesus, you know, Jesus is, 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 is ushering in his new kingdom. He's ushering in his teaching, the gospel. But we don't usually think about it as him fulfilling prophecy, as him making the case that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. So I found it interesting as I was looking at the context of our parable tonight. You know, and I, I, the, the thing that stood out to me is that the, the three parables that kind of comprise the section we're focusing on all start off with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And that got me to really looking at where are we at with the kingdom in this, uh, this phase of Jesus' ministry. If you go back one chapter, Matthew chapter 12 uh, there's a story there that appears really between verse 22 and verse 32 in particular, uh, where Jesus casts out a demon from a man who was made blind and mute by that demon. And the Pharisees, in their criticism of Jesus, uh, they said it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that the, this man casts out demons. You can see that in verse 24. In other words, they claim that the only reason Jesus could do this, the only reason Jesus could cast out a demon, the only reason Jesus has this ability is because he's empowered by Satan himself. Well, Jesus responds to that, pick up in verse 25. It says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by what? or excuse me, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
It's as if Jesus is saying that his ability to cast out demons here is evidence that God's kingdom has been inaugurated already and that the kingdom is open and available now. And so then you get to chapter 13, and there, Ben mentioned that there's seven or eight parables here, the, the, I think all of which address the kingdom in some fashion. So you can look in verse uh, 18, uh, which is reflecting back on the parable of the soils. And it compares the kingdom to soils. In verse 18 in particular, it says, When anyone hears the, words, the word of the kingdom. And it's, this parable seems uh, to address the different ways the kingdom will be received by people. And then you can look at verse 24. We have the kingdom compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And it's a parable that goes on to address why the kingdom matters, because only those who have entered the kingdom are going to be saved on the day of judgment. Verse 31 compares the kingdom to a grain of mustard seed, and that addresses how the kingdom grows. And the very next small parable compares the kingdom to leaven, again a parable that kind of addresses how the kingdom grows. And so what we have is this buildup of teaching specifically kingdom-centric as Jesus approaches these three short parables that we're going to, to look at in just a moment because Jesus, after pointing out that the kingdom has arrived, has at least been inaugurated in his own ministry. And though there's more to it than that, it's not as simple as saying that. Uh, he's now going to talk about the importance of the kingdom and why one should enter it and, and, and eventually how one should, will, will enter it. So we're getting into a very kingdom-specific section of his teaching ministry as we, enter, as we go into chapter 13. Um, on top of that, uh, what I would like to just add is that uh, there are uh, six uh, parables that begin with this kind of uh, phrase, the kingdom of heaven may be compared, the kingdom of, kingdom of heaven is something like something, things like that. And it begins uh, with the uh, parable of the weeds, and then the, the second one is the, the parable of the leaven and the, I mean mustard seed and the leaven. Uh, as Carl mentioned, they are uh, the they are the parables about the kingdom itself, but the parables that we have, to, we will have tonight, is a little bit different. Uh, even though they are also about the kingdom, uh, it is not about the kingdom, but uh, it is the first two, uh, the kingdom of the hidden treasure and the kingdom of the uh, value, the fall, poor. It are about how we have to look at or accept the kingdom of heaven. And finally, the last one, the, kingdom, uh, the, parable, the parable of the net, is the, uh, you know, what would happen uh, according to how we accept the kingdom. So, um, like Kyle mentioned, the, those parables are kind of the whole spectrum of the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom from the beginning, from the kingdom itself and how we accept the kingdom and then uh, 
what will, what will uh, happen if we don't accept the kingdom, things like that. Yeah, I think those are great points. This is obviously a time where he's diving into this idea. He's fulfilling prophecy, which I thought that was a great point, but he's really diving into this kingdom thing. One thing that I found interesting leading up to our direct passage is this is the first chance he's had in some time to be alone with his disciples. I mean, all the way back to, like you were referencing, um, in chapter 12 you have... Uh, you have the demon possessed. You have you have a, a possessed man. They, uh, chapter twelve, verse twenty-two, where he's all the crowds were amazed, and then, and then he instantly starts to have, he instantly has to start addressing the Pharisees down in verse thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, "Teacher, we want a sign from you." And so then in verse forty-six, it just continues to build while he was still speaking to the crowds. Behold, his mothers and brothers. So it's almost as he's teaching, as things are going, more and more people are coming up. Now his family is here. The scribes and Pharisees are asking questions. Chapter thirteen, verse one. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and large crowds gathered to him. And so this, this momentum of teaching continues to grow and to rise and more people are coming. All the way down to the verse that you read, Ben, in verse 34. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And then finally here in verse 36, where he is really answering a question from the, from the disciples. Verse 36, he left the crowds and went into the house. So it's finally, uh, he's, hang, he's done teaching for the day, right? He's been teaching for some time now. If, if this is the timeline of his day, it may have started with a demon-possessed man. <laughs> and so it's been quite a day for, the, for, the, uh, for Jesus so far. And he finally has a quiet moment with his disciples. And actually, they have a question for him. Can you explain to me the story of the parable of the wheat and tares, right? And then it's within that, as he's addressing that question, as he's answering that question... That's when he starts to expound. That's when he starts to layer into other folds of this kingdom-type life. And so I just love this image of Jesus here where he's never done teaching. You know, we all have days maybe where we've worked and you come home and you, you, you're exhausted, right? And if you have to work on another issue, it's just another thing. And maybe there's a conversation that needs to be had or maybe there's something that needs to be figured out. And it just seems like it's never ending. And by the end of the day, you're just so exhausted. I love the image of, of, that we have of Christ here. He's had quite a day. And yet at the end of it, the disciples are asking questions. Can you give us a little bit more? What did you mean here? And he doesn't just, he doesn't just give them a one-off answer. This is what I meant. And so he can get some rest. He says, okay, this is what I was meaning. Let me tell you some more. If you want to know, let me, let me, I'll continue teaching on this. And so this morning at our, our fall retreat, we actually talked a little bit about Jeremiah 20 and verse 9 where he says, I have to, I cannot not remember your name, or to be like a fire shut up in my, in my body and a burning within my bones. You see this in Christ. You see this passion overflowing in Christ that even at the end of the day, even at the day where he's been bombarded with crowds, even his parents showed up uninvited, his mom shows up uninvited almost, you know, so you have this busy day and yet here he is still just expounding and digging deeper because his disciples want that. So it, it, to me it's a beautiful image of Christ and his passion for the for the word and for teaching. Um, well, I, I just want to add one mm -hmm. thing about uh, what we were talking about, the context. Uh, when you look at verse 34 and 35, we also have to understand the authors of these Gospels had different purposes for which they wrote. And we know, you know, what I was trying to allude to earlier is that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience would have really cared about him fulfilling prophecy. And that's why you look at the book of Matthew time and time again, more than any other gospel, 
there are these cross-references from the Old Testament mm -hmm. and Christ fulfilling these prophecies time and time again. Each gospel author had a different purpose for which they wrote. Uh, Matthew wrote to the Jews. Uh, scholars say Mark wrote uh, to the Romans. Uh, scholars say Luke wrote to the Greeks. And then scholars say John wrote to the church itself. And so as you look at Matthew, you can see him positioning all of these parables into one section to really nail home the fact that this is the Christ. We didn't mention this in detail, but verse 34, without a parable, he did not speak to them. This, this, is, this is how, this is the links Matthew tries to go to show and to prove that Christ fulfilled that prophecy. So uh, that's the last thing I had on context. Don't want to get too bogged down on context. It's important. It's important. Any other comments on context before we get right back into the hidden treasure parable? Okay, let's reread re -read verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What's the significance, to, do you guys think, uh, of this treasure being hidden in the first place? Why is that an as aspect of this, uh, of, of this teaching that Christ has in the kingdom? Okay, um... The kingdom of heaven is something that we have to seek and find. It's not just the thing that we can, we can see with our eyes. We can hear or taste by our perceptions. But kingdom of heaven is something that we have to pursue and we have to uh, you know, uh, uh, seek uh, with all our heart. That's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount uh, said that, you know, seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. So kingdom of heaven is something like hidden treasure. So I think we have to seek it and find it. I find it interesting in this hidden terminology that it's, it doesn't seem to appear that the, the, the individual in this particular parable was necessarily searching for this is something that's unnoticed to most it's something that that is uh, obscured in some fashion from most and the way that the individual is described in this particular parable as opposed to the next one he wasn't necessarily intentionally treasure hunting he just happened to come up on it and, and I think that's significant that the the treasure is hidden in the sense that most can't see it. Most won't find it. To most, it will be obscured. And think about the, the people around Jesus at this time. How many people have the kingdom expo right there available to them, but they're so blind by their own, um, their own preconceived ideas or their own hypocrisy or their own agendas that they fail to see it. I mean, he's dealing with the, the Pharisees and the scribes in particular, just in the previous chapter when he casts out that demon, and, and they, they fail to see the kingdom that is right in front of them, in part because they're not looking for it. They're not searching for it. They're, they're not concerned about it. And so for me, the, hit, the hidden language here is significant because it does present the idea that, that for some— the kingdom is just obscured from view. It's unnoticed because they're not looking for it. And they're not searching for it. And in this particular um, one-line parable, 
the individual wasn't necessarily a treasure hunter. He just found something of value. Yeah, when I think of the hidden terminology, that, that's, that's one of the ways I looked at it is it's it just not from the kingdom aspect, but from a treasure aspect. Think about all the people that, that you know, almost stumbled upon this treasure. You know, and, and it makes me think of uh, National Treasure. I love those movies for some reason. I know they're cheesy and dumb or whatever, but I think they're really exciting. And that so many people get so close to the treasure, and then they just they miss it. And, and they, they get this clue, and they get that clue, and they get closer and closer, and they just can't get there. And I think that treasure, that, that aspect is hidden uh, in, that, in that way. But, but more so than that, to me, uh, a hidden treasure is precious. There, there's, there's something precious about it. Um, there is a safety when you think about something that is hidden. Uh, a hidden treasure is safe. The only time a hidden treasure becomes unsafe is when the treasure is found and no longer hidden, right? So uh, as long as it is hidden, that treasure is safe. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be taken. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be damaged. It's hidden. No one can, can, can manipulate the treasure. It's, it's hidden, and no one knows where it is. Uh, it, it's, it's safe in that manner. And that's the great thing about the kingdom of God. It's hidden in Christ. And therefore, it's safe. It's safe, and it cannot be corrupted, and it cannot be taken or stolen away from us. It is hidden with Christ on high. I believe Paul would say that in Colossians 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's that safety that we have in that we are hidden with Christ, in Christ. And so I, that's the significance of this treasure being hidden is that the church, the kingdom, is safe. It's hidden with Christ, uh, who is taking care of this treasure and finds it so precious, finds it so important that he has hidden it himself. He's, he not only found a hidden treasure, but he took it and hid it himself. Christ has done that, or God. It's amazing. Yeah, I kind of had a, a similar thought on that, and a very similar passage, Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. My purpose is that he may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Hidden, buried within. That's where, that's where these, this, this, these treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found Within. And so the fact that this treasure is hidden, it, to me, I, I kind of had a similar thought when it comes to it's hidden within him. And it's one of those things that reminds me of times in my life where I, I have found things from the kingdom or found things in Christ. These almost seem like little nuggets of wisdom or thoughts that a, a passage I haven't thought about in that way or, or something that hits me in a different way when I've, I've read it at a different time where I thought, well, it seems like this has always been right here in front of me, but it's almost like it was hiding because at this point, this is speaking to me because of where I'm at in my life. You know, I always say, I, I, was, I, I remember hearing someone say this, the Bible goes with you and the Bible grows with you. As you mature and as you grow, so also does the need that it meets. You know, what I needed as a 14-year-old boy, what I needed, the encouragement and the knowledge I needed for that, that's found here. 
But now as I'm double that age, the, the wisdom, the insight, everything I still need, even though the, my, my needs and my desires are a lot different, everything I need is still hidden right here in front of me. And so it's found within and as it kind of goes and grows with you. So with that, the same thought exactly as we continue to look at this one, who do we think the man represents in, in this story? To me, the, as, as, as we were just talking about uh, Christ, mm-hmm. Christ to me is the man that has hidden this treasure. And it's interesting, as Kyle was trying to point out, uh, that the, the very people he's talking to uh, throughout his ministry, maybe not in this particular situation, uh, but are people who will never find the treasure because they are not going to the person in which the treasure is hidden in Christ, like you were talking about, Jay. So I think it's interesting, the very Pharisees and, and the religious elite of the day they were never going to find this treasure because they were never looking in the right place. And so the man to me is, is Christ because it says he went and sold all that he had to buy the field. When we think about Christ, we know, Philippians 2, that he emptied himself. There, that means there's nothing left in the tank. There's nothing left for him to give, nothing left for him to offer, nothing left for him to pour out. He emptied himself and lowered himself to the form of a servant dying on the cross, Philippians 2 says. So to me, the, the man is Christ, and he gave every bit of himself for that treasure. That's why he takes such good care of it. That's why he wants to make it safe and to make it precious and to make it taken care of. So, to, to me, the man is Christ, and it's easy for us to see that because Christ emptied himself, just like this man who sold all that he had. Christ gave all that he had for his treasure. I, I certainly uh, agree with Ben. There's a great analogy here for atonement uh, in, in what uh, this parable portrays in and, and considering Christ as the man. But I did take a different approach the, uh, when I was looking at this because I compared it to the very next parable we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. And so uh, I saw it, n- not that uh, what Ben's saying is in- inaccurate. I totally agree with it. But I looked at it this way. What, what if the man here is someone, someone who comes to Christ, someone who enters the kingdom and it sounds weird, by accident. And what I mean by that is, is I started thinking about biblical examples. Because in the next parable, we're, gonna, we're going to see an individual who was intentionally searching. And, and for me, the, the man here is a lot like Saul, who would become Paul. Here's a guy who is serving the Lord to the best of his ability, sincerely, zealously serving the Lord, and he thinks the best way and the right way to do that is to persecute Christians. And so here he is traveling up to Damascus with letter in hand to arrest more Christians, and suddenly Christ meets him on the road. And his eyes are open. He wasn't searching for Christ. He wasn't searching for the kingdom. Well, I guess he technically was, to put him in prison. But he wasn't 
in pursuit of that treasure. But he found it. And when he found it, you can go to Philippians chapter 3 and find out what he did. He gave up his life. He gave up everything that, that he had before. He's, he, in a sense, sacrificed everything, considered it garbage in order to know Christ. And so I, I think you can also, though this is a great analogy for what Christ did, I think you can also see in it the context of, of, of some people who are going to enter the kingdom because they encountered Christ or they encountered um, the truth in some fashion that they did not necessarily anticipate or expect. And, and I think Paul kind of creates this great example for that possibility. And while that may not be exactly why Jesus told this parable, it's just a way in which it stood out to me. I love this format because, you know, I can hear various perspectives. I mean, I have never thought like Ben's thought about this parable uh, comparing this man as with Jesus. But I think, uh, as Carl mentioned, uh, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, that was very uh, great thought. But I'll take Carl's uh, position about this parable that uh, the man is like me. You know, I was not a Christian. I was, I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know about uh, the church at all, nothing. But as I met uh, the truth, as I met the gospel, and as I heard uh, the truth, I just sold everything that I had. Uh, I was a businessman, and I had, I, I had owned some pretty good business, but I sold it because I found a treasure hidden in this way of life. So I moved from the former way of life into this way of life. And, and so I can understand, I mean, I understand this parable like that way. You know, if a man uh, finds the you know, kingdom of heaven, which is, which is full of righteousness, uh, full of uh, happiness and joy, then he would sell everything. In other words, he will, he will discard everything that he had before in the secular life and come to the kingdom of heaven uh, to be able to get it. So that's what I was thinking. You know, I, Mingu, well, first of all, I appreciate that personal reflection on that because I think he, we've been able, we've been blessed, us three, to spend time with you and to, sit, to, hear, to hear more into that. And I'll never read Matthew 13, 44 and not think of you finding the field in that, in that situation exactly. But along with Ben, that one phrase made me think of another verse right there in the, in the middle. It says, and from joy over it he goes and sells all. I, I had to think of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Went down, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And so I'm reminded of, of, of Christ as well in this parable when it comes to the joy. He gave everything. He was, he was willing to go through everything to secure this field and to make this treasure possible. But it wasn't even begrudgingly. He was joy, with joy 
that's when he sold everything. What's our one quick takeaway from this parable before we move on to the costly pearl? To me, it's the fact that God's kingdom is safe. No one can corrupt it. No one can steal it. It's protected, and God sees it as a treasure. Christ sees it as a treasure. Think about him buying it. He's the only one that could buy it. When you look at this field and you look at this treasure that was hidden, Christ is the only one that can pay the price for it. Um, so maybe that's another reason I see him as the man, but to me, ultimately, the greatest part of this parable is the fact that God's kingdom is a treasure in his sight, and it's protected and safe. I, I think the parable just speaks to the value of the kingdom of heaven, and oftentimes we, we think in terms of the value of, of our, our soul and what would we give in exchange for our soul uh, using the language of Matthew chapter 16, and, and granted... There, there's this interconnectedness between souls and the kingdom, but, but just, we haven't said this yet, but when we're talking about the kingdom of God, the present manifestation of that kingdom is the church. You can see that in Matthew chapter 16, uh, particularly in verse 24 and 25, where, where Jesus will use the terms church and kingdom interchangeably as he's speaking to Peter. And that should cause us to go, oh wait, the church, which is the present manifestation of God's kingdom, is valuable. And not only should it be so valuable that I want to, be, to enter it and be a part of it, but I should appreciate it, and I should respect it, and I should contribute to it. That sort of mentality is, is something I kind of take away from this. Um, chapter 13, verse um, 11 says, you know, when, when the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak them in parables? And Jesus said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we evaluate, uh, I mean, we value the kingdom of heaven, and we are in the kingdom of heaven, and we really, uh, you know, rejoice that we are in the kingdom of heaven. So I am really pleased that I understood the gospel, and I accepted the gospel. And in other words, according to this parable, I could be compared as the one, as the man who found the hidden treasure, and I'm enjoying it right now. That is really great. Amen. Let's turn our attention down to verse 45 through 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. What can we learn from the merchant in this passage? To me, it's, it's, you look at verse 45, he was seeking beautiful pearls. Plural. He, he, he was not looking for the one pearl, but that's the one he saw. And to me, that t teaches us something about this merchant is instead of taking a lot of very little, he took very little of a lot. And so when he saw this great pearl of great price, this costly pearl, he had to have it. To me, I think about this pearl as the one thing that never gets sold, right? Because all these people keep coming in and, and buying what they can afford, buying what's on their budget, and it's this it's this pearl that never gets bought, and there it is in all of its glory. Everybody wants it, 
but no one can get it. No one can pay for it. No one can foot the bill for it except for this merchant. And this merchant comes in and foots the bill. The merchant comes in and says, instead of all these other things I could have, I want my entire focus, I want my entire money, all I have to be on this one pearl of great price. And so he sells all that he has and buys it. And to me, yet again, it's this analogy, it's this allusion to Christ. Christ had all the opportunity to do whatever he wanted on earth. But instead, he chose the church to be that one pearl of great price. And he put all that he had into it and bought it. And, and, and so I, that's, that's what I look, when I look at this merchant. Um, when he saw the pearl, it became his only desire. It became his only uh, thought. He had to have it. He had to purchase it. And that's the same way Christ looked at the church. He had to purchase it. He had to buy it. And he had to have it for himself. Uh, and so that, that's, that's what I look at from verses 45-46. Once again, another great analogy to Jesus there. And once again, Keep I... choosing someone else than Jesus. <laughs> See how far it takes you. I'm just kidding. But for me on this one, so in, in the comparison to what I said previously about how the, the hidden treasure parable reminded me of Paul... This parable and the merchant in it reminds me of guys like Cornelius. Here's a guy who was searching for the truth. Here's a guy who was searching for that which was truly valuable and worthwhile. When you read about Cornelius over in, in Acts chapter 10, you, you read about how he is a fervent pray, uh, prayer and how he is um, this generous benefactor of people and you have this description of a guy who's in search of what is true, and God's going to lead him to it. I also think about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Here's a guy who travels to Jerusalem so he can visit the temple. Here's a guy who's reading the Old Testament scriptures because he's in search of what's true. And God's going to send Philip there to help him along that journey. And when, he, and when he finds that which is true, he doesn't hesitate to get in the water, to enter the kingdom. And so when I, and same thing with Cornelius. So, so for me, when I look at these parables, it, particularly here, here in the parable of the pearl of great price, I'm, I'm seeing a different type of individual than the other one. I'm seeing the, the, the searcher, the ones who's seeking for the truth. It reminds me of my, my grandfather, because I'm a third-generation Christian. My, my maternal grandfather... He decided he needed to discover the truth. And so he took his Bible and he started visiting churches and visited every denomination uh, around himself, himself until he found one that matched the church he read in the New Testament, and that was the Church of Christ. And so then he and, and my, grand, my maternal grandmother, they were baptized and they, they became members of the body of Christ as a result of their searching for that which is true. And so for me, when I look at these parables, Ben looks at both of these parables and sees a great comparison to what Christ has done. And I'm looking at these parables, and I'm seeing a great comparison to the ways in which we might find the truth. And isn't that the brilliance of Jesus as a teacher? To present parables that can be viewed in two different ways. 
but carry deep, deep, meaning, meaningful truths about them. Um, what's interesting here is that uh, the a parable of the hidden treasure uh, was written in the present tense. The, uh, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field as the current action. You know? But in this parable, the parable of the pearl uh, of great value says that on finding one pearl of the great value went and sold and all that he had and bought it. So it is uh, described in the past tense. Um, this gives me a kind of an, an image that I have done something in my life. Since I found the hidden treasure, I have done something, I mean, something in some way, like I was a, was a merchant of the pearl. So uh, not only Jesus is giving us the, you know, uh, is the analogy that uh, we have to pursue the kingdom of heaven, but also we have to do our best to keep it, you know, to, uh, to you know, uh, maintain it in our lives. I mean, uh, to maintain our lives actually in it. So I think that is uh, another thing that we can see here by the uh, comparison of the tenses. Absolutely. You know, one thing I had never really thought about when I read this passage, um, I think every time I read this, I, I get so transfixed on the pearls, right? That's the treasure that's being found in this, and that's a great analogy for the church in itself. But one thing that I noticed upon this study and upon this reading is what the kingdom of heaven is being compared to is, is the merchant. That, that's the, the focus of this. Just like in verse 4, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. That's the focus. That's the illustration in verse 45. And it, the, though this does not diminish any importance of the, the part of the pearls in this at all, I just found it interesting that I had never really noticed this, that the, really the thing that it's focusing on, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is seeking fine pearls. And so I, I think that's like, like we've been talking about. This is an act of seeking. And so, not to just echo the, the great thoughts that have already been coming across, I, I look inwardly now and say, is the, is the kingdom of heaven still a merchant seeking? Is it still seeking for great things? Obviously, we've, we've talked about the, the great analogy of Christ seeking and paying all for what he's found and everything of that. But is the kingdom of heaven still, in the sense, searching out those who need it? And so I thought that was just one other very small way of looking at it. Any other takeaways from this passage before we look at the last one? Okay, let's reread re -read verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew, up on, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age that angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One of the only things that I'm going to point out before we just have a general discussion on this is what do you think the significance is of that comment at the, the bottom of verse 47? And gathering fish of every kind. What can we learn from just that? You know, the net was not thrown out for a specific type of fish. Uh, to me, the net was thrown out to catch whatever might come into the net. 
Uh, it wasn't sent out. It wasn't to be selective. A certain type of fish, uh, growing up fishing, uh, you put a certain type of bait on the line to get a certain type of fish. Well, this net is just thrown out to catch whatever might come into the net. To me, that's what he's talking about, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like this net that has been spread out onto all the world. Whoever might come into the net is able. Whoever might trust the fishermen is, is able to join the net and to be received as if it's the greatest fish. Now, I know there are some that were thrown away, obviously, when you are no longer good for the purpose for which you were caught. You're no longer good to be kept, so you must be thrown away. But when it comes to this net, it wasn't, uh, there was no partiality about who the net caught. And I think that's the same thing with the church. It doesn't matter what background you have, what race you are, uh, where you come from, or how much money you have, God wants you in the church. God wants you in His body. God, in fact, Acts chapter 2 says, for the promises to you and to everyone, to all nations, to all those who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the net has been cast onto the world. The net has been cast to catch one sum of every kind, as the text says. And just to piggyback off that, because that was a great thought, you go back to the parable that started this whole chapter, the parable of the sower, and the, and the sower is going out throwing the seed onto all types of ground because the, the, uh, the kingdom itself is impartial. And, and that's the concept that's being conveyed throughout this source of parables that we have here is that, is that the kingdom's available to all. And I would love that point, Ben. But I view it a little bit different uh, from a little bit different angle that the net is compared directly to the kingdom. You know, it's like the parable of, parable of the weed. You know, the son of man came and spread the seed, good seed, but the evil one came at night and spread the, you know, weeds in the, in, in the world. So it is like that. You know, the, the net is the kingdom. You know, when the kingdom is uh, established in this world, there can be every kinds of person. Uh, we, you know, as a, as a church, we are open. Anybody can come in and worship with us and do what we do together with us. But being, just being in the kingdom doesn't mean that we will be judged righteous to go into heaven. So we have to be very careful about what we are doing, how we are doing, and what we believe and what we, uh, you know, promote and evangelize. And by what we have done, we will be selected like the fish by the, you know, fishermen. And some of us, I hope not, but unfortunately, some of us would be like the bad fish. And most of us will be like good fish. So the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, is working like a, uh, what, selector or tester of us. Even though we all are in the kingdom of heaven, how we do in the kingdom of heaven will be judged. 
Amen. Uh, I thought about Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew, Greek, there is neither slave, nor free, free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all in one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Looking at this parable, one thing that I, I found fascinating as my takeaway as, as well is not only the equality that's brought into in gathering fish of every kind, you know, kind of like you were saying when it comes to you have different baits for different stuff. This, this dragnet was there to catch every fish of every single kind. And the way that it was picked out, you know, you, you know I, I don't want salmon, I'm only going, or I don't want catfish, I'm only going for salmon here. What, not that I don't, I don't think Mediterranean Sea has any catfish, but um, the quality that kept them was not their type, but their quality itself. In Galatians 3, verse 29, 28 says, you're all equal. But what makes you heirs according to the promise is if you belong to Christ. You're all equal in the kingdom, but what really makes you heirs is that, that, that uh, belonging to Christ comment. And so even though it's a dragnet that's gathering all fish and everybody's getting caught up in it, at the end of the day, those that, that uh, I would say almost stood to the standard, which would be Christ in this situation, the kingdom, those are the ones that are kept. What are some final takeaways from these six? From these three parables here talking about the kingdom of heaven so specifically about the dragnet uh you know i saw in the hidden treasure parable the man i saw as jesus the pearl of great price i saw the merchant as jesus and in the parable of the dragnet i see the fisherman who threw out the net as jesus uh to keep that same conversation that i've been trying to talk about tonight to me the fisherman is jesus because as he said Himself, he will draw all men unto himself. And that's this idea that we're talking about with this net. He has drawn in all men unto himself, like you were talking about Galatians 3, through Christ. Uh, and so you think about even who will be uh, parting the, the sheep and the goats. Jesus, God looks to Jesus, and Jesus says, I do not know him. So Jesus is the one who even tells whether or not you are good for something, good for uh, the fish that you are. So to me, I think ultimately my final takeaway from these three uh, parables is when it comes to the kingdom of God, even though it's hidden, even though it's costly, God and Jesus still want everybody in it. And I think that's, that's, that's the combination of these three parables. It's the, the kingdom of God is hidden, the kingdom of God is costly, and the kingdom of God is still open for all. We don't have to worry about purchasing that kingdom because it's already been purchased. We don't have to worry about finding that kingdom because it's already been found. All we've got to worry about is being a part of that kingdom. It was hidden, it was costly, but it was purchased so that we can all be in it. And that the choice is ours at the end of the day. And I think it's important for us to read verse 51. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. There's no doubt in my mind that those people listening understood what Jesus was teaching in these parables. Because Jesus, as he, we talked about in verse 35, he was uttering the things that were kept in secret from the foundation of the world and revealing it to them about his kingdom. I see the big takeaway for me from particularly the dragnet 
is that it depicts judgment. I mean, it, there is a judgment coming. There's going to be a separation. Ben referenced the sheep and the goats. You also have the wheat and the tares that um, uh, Mingu was talking about earlier. And this brought my attention back to something Jesus said earlier in Matthew's Gospels in, in chapter 7. And it alludes to the fact that some people are going to think that they're good fish when they're really bad fish. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a sobering reminder when we look at the, the, this uh, dragnet parable. It's a sobering reminder that, the, that, many can, can enter the, that many can enter the kingdom, but entering the kingdom isn't the only assurance of salvation. That there is expectation of faithful living. There is an expectation of doing the will of the Father in, in, throughout the entirety of your life. And we need to, to be soberly reminded that there are some who are going to be surprised by the outcome on the Day of Judgment. And we need to have that challenge us to not be numbered among those. Um, the parables 44, I mean, the, in the verses 44 and 45, you know, the kingdom of the hidden treasure, I mean, the parable of the hidden treasure and parable of the pearl gives me some hope that there may be someone like, you know, the, the man who was, who, who wants to find the hidden treasure and who, someone who is like the merchant seeking for the kingdom of heaven. So, I mean, this gives me, as an, I mean, to me, an evangelist, uh, a hope that I want to meet them and I want to help them and I want to help them to evaluate the uh, kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thanks for your thoughts tonight, God. Let's end our time with a prayer. Dear God, we thank you so much for the time that we had tonight. Lord, our prayer in earnest is that we, uh, Lord, honored your word tonight and gave it due respect, Lord. We, we pray that our thoughts and our comments, Lord, on your word do not detract at all, Lord, but all glory goes to the wisdom that you've laid down for us so many years ago, Lord, and your ultimate wisdom. Lord, you knew exactly what we needed and you knew exactly how it should be taught. And here now, 2,000 years later, after Christ said these very words, Lord, they're still guiding us and still teaching us in every single way, Lord. And we thank you that we live in a blessed generation to be able to look at these words. We also thank you, Lord, for seeing us as valuable. As we study tonight, as we recognize tonight, is how costly and how valuable this kingdom is, Lord. We also come to terms with it, Lord, that we are this kingdom right now, and we're the ones that you saw valuable. We're we are the ones, Lord, that had that high cost, and you purchased us with your son's blood, and we thank you for seeing that. Help us to see value in ourselves, Lord, when it comes to what we can do and what we can achieve in you, Lord, and how much we mean in your eyes. Thank you for being our Father as you take care of us every day. We pray this through your son's